When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 230 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today in the podcast, we welcome Bull Gervaisi from Policy of Three, 400 Years, and also Rambo. Now, Policy of Three changed my life. I saw them when I was in high school, and it was an amazing experience of something that was both chaotic and also beautiful at the same time, and really put me on a different path to seeing how things were done in punk and DIY. Now, in speaking with Bull, punk and DIY changed his life and also throughout his life. And I think it's really important to listen through the entire episode because all of these things make sense with him in his music career, uh, at work, at a a food co-op. And it was all kind of rooted in the fucked up world we're in and what he's doing what he's doing about it versus just kind of being in it and i thought it's like his proactive approach and it's also timely because a lot of his bands sound um like drive like jehu and this past weekend rick froberg from drive like jehu passed away unexpectedly and so it's kind of a fitting episode um to have bull talk about policy of three which was a band for me that changed a lot for me. They were from New Jersey. They were on from 1989 uh, to 1995. They were on Ebullition, kind of a spoken word scream. Some say Hoover, some say Drive Like Jehu, some say Moss Icon, Still Life, right? Check them out. Also, he played two years with 400 Years, which they were on from 96 to 2000. He was in it from the last two years. They sound like Fugazi, 12 Hour Turn, Portrait to Pass, Drive Like Jehu, as I said before, and Sleepy Time Trio. So, Really great conversation with Bull. I really hope you enjoy. And uh, rest in peace to Rick Froberg from Job Like Jay, who we, uh, you know, sort of uh, in passing. Um, this is a great episode to have after that unfortunate news. So thank you for listening. This is episode 230 of the Washed Up Email podcast with Bull Gervaisi from Policy of Three and 400 Years. It is Tom Mullen. How are you? Pretty good. How you doing? Good, man. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. And I don't know if I mentioned in my email or not, but I did see you guys back in the day. Yeah, in Burlington? In Burlington, say? yeah. Um, yep. Which And I remember buying a shirt, which I've had... I think I still <laughs> have it. Um, one of the screen printed ones. But I remember thinking I bought a shirt 
instead of music. And I was thinking about this today. I probably bought that because I wanted to like show off that I went to the show and <laughs> the music wasn't going to do that. Or maybe the shirt was cheaper. Like, yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, uh, shit, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's policy three. Don't worry about it. You know, like trying to be cool. But I think that was why. Oh, uh, that's funny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, our shirts were probably like five bucks. I printed all of them. So, uh, yeah, if we had them, I had some spare time to print some shirts. Right. To get us some gas money, typically. Uh, <laughs> so, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate uh, it. <laughs> I mean, I, I recently read an interview you kind of did, uh, in late November. Um, and it was funny that the, the writer's experience was similar to mine. Like I don't, I never heard of you before. I went to the show. I, I don't even remember who else played, but I remember it might have been no different show. I was about to say frail, but I don't think they were on that show. They might have been. No. Different it show. Might have been uh might have been chokehold, maybe. Yes, it was chokehold. Um Yeah. It was cold as shit. And our van heat didn't work. I remember that. And uh some of the guys from Econoclass were with us, but I don't think they played. Uh, I think we just, they just came up with us. Uh, beyond that, I don't remember too much. That's fine. We got there kind of late and I remember the show being fun, but you know, that was a million years ago. It was, Uh, it was absolutely a million years ago. (laughs) It's totally (laughs) true. Uh, but it was impactful and I think it was the DIY shirt and the silk screen and it, it, it impacted me. Um, and again, that point where you didn't think you could do anything and you know that, and then you saw someone do that. Um, and I think you guys definitely, and a lot of times, uh, this was definitely earlier than, uh, most, I mean, the starting, you know, in, in the, in the late eighties, <laughs> correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started in 89, uh, as we were called Matter of Fact then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first few years, we went by that name. We really wanted to be a hardcore band. Uh, you know, we're from New Jersey. It's all these great New Jersey and New York hardcore bands uh, that we wanted to fit in with and just we just couldn't do it. Uh, it just wasn't in us. It wasn't in our DNA. Right. Uh, How did you get into but, hardcore? Was it your, was it your brother? Was it, was it friends? Like, how did you get into it? It was, uh, the funny thing is, so my brother, he's three years older than me and, uh, he was really into, well, we both were into horror films as, uh, as kids. And, uh, he put a classified in a horror film magazine looking for a pen pal, uh, or pen pals, uh, cause people did that back then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, decades before the internet and all that, uh, was widely available. And, uh, this guy, James wrote back to him and, you know, they started corresponding. Uh, and at some point they started sending each other cassette tapes, you know, just speaking rather than writing. And, uh, I would usually say a few words, but I really didn't speak a whole lot back then i was super shy and awkward and uh so at one at some point uh james on the 
B-side of one of his cassettes, he was like, oh, here's some music that I've been listening to. And uh, the Sex Pistols were on there. And I, I don't remember anything else that was on the cassette except that. And we were both just fucking blown away by it. Wow. Uh, like, this is the craziest shit we've ever heard. And it's so cool. Uh, so, we, you know, I was, let's see, I was 12, so he was 15 at the time. And uh, we figured out that there was a record store close to our house uh, and started poking around in there and like at the mall looking for the Sex Pistols and I got Nevermind the Bollocks. And from there we kind of, you know, I think we did the thing that most young punks did back in the 80s and all was, you know, look at the thank you list, look at the t-shirts that bands are wearing you know, I asked the guy at the record store, uh, at the record store, it was this record store called Full Circle that doesn't exist anymore, but uh, those guys were great. You know, they, they pointed us towards a lot of cool stuff, and then we just started buying records that had cool-looking covers, you know. It's like mm-hmm. Subhumans, it's got like a priest on it, and uh, I don't know, all kinds of crazy shit going on. Uh, it must be good, so we'd buy that, and... You know, we'd buy like an MDC record because it's got whatever cops on it and like uh, conflict and stuff like that. So we got into a lot of music just by kind of trial and error and, you know, looking around on thank you lists. And then we discovered Maximum Rock and Roll through that record store as well. Uh, and same thing, you know, obsessively read the scene reports and the reviews and the classifieds started ordering all kinds of shit from there uh and you know it was good because you know neither of us had much money uh we both had paper routes uh delivering newspapers on our bicycles uh in the late 80s and the meager amount of money that we made from that we would save up and then you know place an order with like positive force or discord or uh, our radical records or toxic shock, uh, like all these labels that had cool sounding bands on them, uh, that we didn't really know much about. Uh, and over time, you know, started to figure it out a little bit more and discovered that there were shows happening in Philly. Uh, cause my brother was friends with some folks in his high school who were kind of in this like weird place between being really into prog rock and and also kind of into punk. I know those uh, kids. Like they're sort of, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> like who you're describing. Punks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, they, I believe they kind of ushered him to his first show. I wasn't allowed to go because I was too young still uh, for the first, I don't know, six months or something like that, uh, that he was going to shows. Um but I believe it was somewhere around like January of 87. Uh, and I was still 12. Uh, my parents then decided it was okay for me to go to Philly and go to a punk show. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> with my brother's older friends. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was fucking mind blowing. Uh, Do you remember the show? You know, I, what's that? Do you remember the show? Oh yeah. Uh, I didn't know who any of the bands were. 
but it was verbal assault, government issue, uh, this local band misunderstood, and uh, and a Philly band, FOD. That was your uh, first show? That was my first show. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. What a fucking uh, introduction. I know. <laughs> I just wish I had known who the bands were at the time. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter then. Music, it doesn't matter. Like It's true. <laughs> it was, you were seeing pieces like you were picking up on it already it didn't it didn't matter but it's like to have those bands be the the start oh man good job yeah i mean i was totally intoxicated by it and (laughs) it absolutely took me you know to the next level of being obsessed with punk (laughs) from a very early age do you remember what shirt Uh, you wore to it Oh man, I, I don't know. It's probably the bad brain shirt that I still have. You still have it, nice. <laughs> I've, yeah, I have a hard time getting rid of stuff, which is good now. I've got a lot of you know records that I've had for thirty plus years. Yeah, a couple of t-shirts that haven't completely disintegrated yet. <laughs> uh, you know, a whole lot of flyers, photos, all that kind of shit. Uh, I've got a. A good little archive going. After that first show, you got home. You probably couldn't sleep. You know, you got into <laughs> you got into more stuff and started diving in. Like, um, when did you say like I want to start playing? I want to I want to play this music. Yeah, playing came a little bit later. Uh, I was probably about well, I guess I was only really fourteen. You know, in those days, it felt like a lifetime from yeah. year to year. You know, a school year was like forever uh <laughs> but uh i yeah at that point you know i'd had some uh i want to mention my uncle real quick because uh prior to getting into punk uh we my brother and i would spend time at my grandparents house and my uncle uh lived on the top floor of their house in this kind of Greg Brady room, if you remember that from the Brady Bunch. Totally. Uh, you know, he had like the attic, converted attic bedroom that was badass. The coolest place to us as little <laughs> kids. Because uh, it was covered in posters of like David Bowie, Pig Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, you know, Queen, whatever. All these bands, uh, 70s and 60s bands that he loved, you know, prog bands and 70s rock bands and all this. Uh, he had this great record collection and this giant sparkly gold Slingerland drum set. Uh, and he was a phenomenal musician and just loved music. And uh, so we would, whenever we'd go to my parents, grandparents' house, we would just go up into his room and hang out there and he'd play stuff for us or we'd mess around on his drums or whatever. Uh, he also, drums and accordion were his two main instruments. Uh, I think he first started playing accordion when he was a little kid. And then as he got into music, more contemporary music, he started playing drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he was a phenomenal musician and, uh, mostly only ever like played in cover bands with his friends. Uh, but he was a huge influence on me just becoming interested in music outside of top 40 radio 
what did he tell you? What did he, uh, how did he get you? It wasn't even so much that he told me anything, uh, in words. It was more in actions, just exposing us to music that our parents sure as hell didn't listen to. Uh, and, you know, showing us that there was this other world of music that was really interesting and unique, uh, to our ears, at least at the time, was, you know, unlike anything we'd ever heard before. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't really anything all that obscure, just as five, seven, ten-year-olds, whatever, uh, you know, we hadn't really been exposed to, like, Yes or King Crimson or uh, Pink Floyd, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bands that I still love, um, it was, you know, it just kind of introduced us to this whole other world of music that was, like, that was kind of the beginning of me becoming interested in music. Uh, and he's kind of, he kind of came in and out at various times in my life once I got into punk, uh, which maybe we'll get into later. But, uh, but yeah, that was great and a big influence. And then I got into punk and that kind of, I took a big right turn and that was like the main focus musically for me, uh, from then on. And, uh, excuse me. Um, so yeah, you know, we just, my brother and I kind of became immersed in it and about probably two years in my friend, Rich, uh, just another kid from the neighborhood, uh, was I think more so into metal, but also was kind of, crossing over into punk a little bit and had started playing guitar. He's like, you should start playing bass and then we can have a band. And, uh, so I was like, okay, sure. And, uh, I tried to convince my parents to buy me a bass and they didn't go for it. Uh, and you know, I wound up saving up that paper route money for a while and got this shitty, like short scale bass. Uh, and was so psyched. And, uh, you know, we started playing together. There was oh, some other mutual friends had started a band called Nuclear Override, and uh, that was where we met Chris, uh, Chris Fry, who became the drummer in Matter of Fact, and then Policy of Three. Um, so we started playing together as a three-piece then, uh, and someone had recommended to us... Uh, that we should talk to this guy, Jeff, Jeff Fisher, who became our singer, um, who went to another, a different school than we went to in the next town over. Um, so we all started, uh, you know, we started playing together then and somehow the stars were aligned just right that there became this really great little scene in our part of South Jersey, uh, you know, kind of just over the bridge from, from, uh, Philly in Camden County, uh, where there were a whole bunch of punks and skaters and other weirdos that kind of popped up, uh, because there wasn't much going on in Philly then. Cause all the clubs had gotten shut down by the Nazis in the late eighties. Uh, there was just too many fights and too much violence. So there were very few shows 
on a DIY level in Philly those days. Uh, so my brother and Chris Fry, the drummer from Policy 3, um, went to this movie theater, The Harwin, and uh, spoke with them about us starting to put on shows there. So then the three of us started doing shows there, and it was we would maybe do one a month or one every other month. And it was basically the same, like three bands, because there weren't very many bands. Uh, the first several shows that we did, uh, you know, it was us, there was this band point of view, and there was one or two other bands that would uh, would play. And then every other weekend, there was a pool party or a basement show or someone decided to do a show in a barn or something. But like a hundred or so kids would come out. Wow. Uh, and it was awesome. You know, it was like, this was, we started doing them in 89. Uh, so I guess I was 15 at that point. Uh, and as time went on, we started to get more bands, you know, getting into like 1990. Uh, we started to get some bands from North Jersey. You know, we had like some of the, uh, Jersey hardcore bands played, you know, like Lifetime Resurrection, uh, uh, who else? Mouthpiece, Turning Point. Uh, Were you finding and, some of these in Book Your Fucking Life? Uh, it was before that. Um, See, look at this, before this that. Was, like, how were you finding Lifetime, or how were you finding those bands? Uh, those, we were mostly we wound up talking to him at shows, you know, we were going to a lot of shows. Uh, most of my friends that I got into punk with were a little bit older than me. Uh, like the other guys in policy three were a year or two older than me. So they got their driver's license a little bit earlier. And then we would start, you know, driving to city gardens in Trenton or, you know, up to Middlesex County college for some of those shows. Uh, you know, up to New York, to ABC No Rio, or uh, I never made it to uh, CBs, but uh, to some of the other places up there, uh, as we would hear about shows. But, uh, you know, if it was a smaller DIY show and we didn't feel too intimidated, you know, we'd maybe talk to a band and be like, hey, we're doing shows at this movie theater in South Jersey, uh, if you ever want to play, and uh, you know, in those days folks were always looking for places right. to play. Uh, That's rad. I mean, you had to go to the show, you had to be a part of it to, you know, it wasn't like you could go search on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and we, you know, we were so young, we still, we didn't know anybody. So it wasn't like we could be right. like, Hey, you know, uh, I don't know, call up our friends from Lifetime or Mouthpiece. You know, we wound up becoming friends with those folks, but, uh, but at the time it was kind of, you know, the equivalent of a cold call or something, you know, we're just going up to folks and being like, Hey, we like your band. We'd like to do a show for you in South Jersey in some town you never heard of. Uh, there'll probably be like a hundred people there. <laughs> we could surely give you at least gas money. Uh, and yeah, a lot of folks were pretty psyched. And, uh, so then, yeah, it started to branch out a little bit more. We were getting some more out of town bands. And, uh, the first, 
band that was really out of our region that we got was uh, Neurosis played. And uh, I don't know, my brother managed to finagle that somehow. Uh, I don't remember how he how he did that, but uh, I think at that point he was kind of in contact with a few people, maybe involved with Gilman Street, or uh, he became friendly with Devin Morph, who was in a handful of bands, but at that point uh, was in this band All You Can Eat, and uh, he may have put the Neurosis folks in touch with us uh, because they were booking their The Word Is Law tour. Uh, and that fucking blew your mind. That totally fucking blew my mind. Again, yeah, that was, you know, this kind of crusty, heavy fucking band uh, from the West Coast, you know, some place that was inconceivable to me, you know, California, who knows? That's like so far away from my South Jersey home uh, that, you know, we saw them playing there, just these, you know, big, crusty, bearded, dreadlocked dudes right. playing heavy music. Uh, you know, they were like kind of right on the cusp of getting weird. Uh, they were, you know, it was Warner's Law Tour. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but, uh, you know, it was before they really got heavy into keyboard and sampling. And Right. No, I totally, uh, yeah, definitely listened to them. Yeah, that was definitely before that. Yeah. Uh, and it was fucking great yeah uh so that opened up this whole world of a a national scene to me that i had only read about in maximum rock and roll and places like that uh flip side and yeah other zines that we had discovered and uh and it, and it was right in front of you yeah and that was around the time where we were starting to play music and that didn't feel like anything that was at all within our reach but uh, but it was cool to see and see that like, you know, the, one of the things I love about punk, you know, that, that a band can come from California and play in our like weird little movie theater, uh, where, you know, 15 year old me and I don't know, I guess my brother was probably about 18 at that point, uh, had put on the show and, and it was great. You know, it went off without a hitch. Everybody was happy. They got paid. Us and all our friends saw an awesome band at a great point in their uh, career as musicians. And, uh, yeah, just kind of, again, it started to uh, show me the kind of the power of punk and the DIY scene, the DIY movement within punk that we can do whatever the fuck we want. Like, we can, we can make this happen. We live in this little town, not much going on. So the three of us got together. We started playing music. We started putting on shows. And now we've got like, you know, bands coming in from California. Uh, like, this is awesome. This is way cooler than hanging out at the mall or something. Right. Uh, and there weren't really any other shows going on. So, you know, nobody else is going to do it. So, so we you, decided to do it. And having all those kids show up, you realize that, wow, we're not the only ones. Yeah, yeah, which is, yeah, really, really kind of invigorating in a way. Uh, you know, you don't feel alone as a weirdo punk, which, yeah, in those days it was harder to connect with people and see that you were 
not the only weirdo in town. Right. The, uh, yeah, I think going to those sh- going to shows like seeing you guys that night. Like I went. Yes, I wanted to see the music, but also the people there were cool. They they brought a distro. Mm-hmm. They were, and it. I felt. You know, you're right. You felt okay. You felt. You know, especially in high school, you're not those. None of those people relate. You know, <laughs> they're not. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> being able to find that, but I think you guys taking that initiative and fuck man, like finding a venue, putting on the show, like figuring all that out, like at 18, you know, 17, 16, whatever the, like that is, um, that's just amazing. And fi- seeing that there was this void, um, to be able to do that, uh, and being able to, uh, m- make it work, um, you know, just seems like, um, I don't know. It just, it, it probably, it probably didn't feel like a lot of work. Um, but it, it definitely was. And you're right. You were able to do it. And I think what we haven't brought up too is like, kind of like the political side of it. Like you're, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. these, a lot of these folks that were coming to these were speaking about those issues and speaking about things. And, and, uh, and it was a, I think that was another piece that I loved about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the politics, it's inseparable for me as a part of punk. That's always, it's just, it goes hand in hand. Uh, You know, those first bands I got into, I mean, Sex Pistols, I didn't really understand. I had no idea really what they were talking about. Uh, Not sure I still do. Uh, but, uh, But, you know, like some of the earliest bands I got into were like, Seven Seconds, Conflict, Jumbawamba, uh, Zounds, MDC, uh, you know, Minor Threat, like all these bad brains. Uh, yeah, all these bands that were had really great lyrics, really great information on their lyric sheets, uh, really interesting stuff that, that, yeah, as a young person, I hadn't been exposed to. Uh, you weren't going to read that in a book. No. Or a textbook, <laughs> a, a, a textbook rather. You know, you're not going to get that at school. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, I really felt like school was a total waste of time for me. Uh, I almost feel like if I knew that dropping out was an option, I probably would have tried to. But I think my father would have kicked my ass. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I went to school. I dreamt about getting out and listening to music or playing music or going to shows. And that, you know, that became my, my education. It became my, you know, like it became everything. Uh, you know, I learned so much through punk It inspired me and influenced me in so many ways, uh, that I still feel grateful. And like, I, uh, have a, a, uh, you know, a desire to, to give back, uh, in hopes of providing that for someone else through, through music or actions. Uh, the, uh, one kind of side note to politics and music, uh, for me, my kind of introduction to the world being a fucked up place, uh, came before I even knew about punk. I, uh, somehow I, became a, a fan of Peter Gabriel as a, a young kid. And uh, so I 
I got a couple of cassettes at the, the mall or something like that. And, uh, there's a song on one of his records, uh, about Stephen Biko, uh, the anti-apartheid activist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was basically about him being killed by the police, uh, for his activism. And it took me a while to kind of figure it out because again, you know, I was at that time probably 10 or something. It didn't really totally make sense to me, but eventually, uh, it kind of came together either by, you know, listening to the, the news on TV or whatever, uh, going to the library, stuff like that. Um, that that was sort of my introduction to, you know, power corrupting people and governments not necessarily always having people's best interests in, in mind. And, uh, you know, racism and all this that, uh, yeah, as a young kid, that was my first exposure to that. And uh, that was kind of a turning point. And then once punk came along and I started, you know, reading conflict lyrics and about, you know, the police and the government and used today lyrics about uh, vegetarianism and stuff like that and seven seconds lyrics about racism and whatever, all these different things. It all just kind of like started to come together and like, this is, this is it. This is for me. This is so much more interesting and uh, informative than anything else I'd ever experienced. Uh, So that was, yeah, that was a huge influence. Wow. Politics. I love that you remember that Peter Gabriel tape or that, that moment. Like, I don't <laughs> think I would have remembered that at 10. Yeah. I mean, it really, it really was kind of, it changed my life in some ways. Uh, you know, that is the moment there where, yeah, where I kind of woke up to a little taste of how, how the world world operates and how fucked up it is in, in ways. You wanted to get into activism or you knew that things were fucked up. Like what other ways were you trying to influence or um, experience those? Yeah. I mean, in those early years in high school and stuff, we would, uh, the shows at the Harwin theater, at the movie theater, we would often, uh, set up a table and have some information from uh, like Amnesty International or PETA or something like that. And uh, we did a few uh, benefit shows there uh, for different organizations that we'd come across. Uh, I feel like it wasn't really until we got a little bit older and moved to Philly, uh, you know, that this, the shift happened where we, became policy of three and uh, two of the guys moved up to New Brunswick um, and we're going to Rutgers and me and Chris, the drummer moved to Philly and uh, that like right around that time was also when we started the cabbage collective, the group that we put on shows with in Philly for a handful of years. Uh, And yeah, that was really, I feel like where we, kind of came into our own and uh, had, you know, read about and been influenced by Gilman Street Project and ABC No Rio uh, and, you know, reading Maximum Rock and Roll for years about different 
spaces and uh, venues and organizations and things like that. Uh, yeah, and MRR, that that was when we kind of could put it all together into something of our own. And uh, so, yeah, we started this group, The Cabbage Collective, again, my brother and I and uh, Chris, my friend Jen, and uh, we, when we first started it, we decided to have a picnic at uh, one of the parks downtown in Philly and just invite any of the punks in Philly who wanted to come. You know, we put flyers up all over in the record stores and, uh, you know, the taco shop and stuff like that where people hung flyers uh, being like, hey, we want to start having shows in Philly. We want folks to be involved with it. We want to hear what you want. Uh, you know, we're interested in doing fundraisers and we want to have like information tables at the shows and we want to have vegetarian food. We want it to be a, you know, a comfortable space, uh, for, you know, anyone who's interested in coming, uh, you know, it's not going to be at that point, you know, the hardcore scene had gotten really violent and that was what we were reacting to. We didn't want to be a part of that. And there still wasn't much going on in Philly at that point since a lot of the spaces had been shut down uh, from the Nazis in the late 80s. Um, so we were trying to start something new when there wasn't really much going on uh, in the DIY scene at that point. And uh, there was, I don't know, probably 30 people or something showed up uh, to our picnic, punk picnic, uh, at Washington Square downtown in Philly. And... I guess that was probably the beginning of 1993, um, spring of 93, probably. Um, mm, it was either fall of 92 or spring of 93, because I think our first show was fairly early in 93, so it must have been a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it was great. You know, there was spiky-haired punks who turned up and... Uh, you know, folks who were just kind of interested in what, uh, you know, what we could put together as a group, uh, in the city, you know, so we got like recommendations for folks from folks for potential spaces, uh, various things. We, uh, we wound up using this, uh, place, the Calvary church, which I actually live a half a block away from, uh, still to this day. Uh, so we started doing our shows there and it was great. I mean, from the start, it was, you know, it was kind of our little utopian, uh, show space. Uh, the church was cool. It was more of a community center than a church, uh, as a lot of the old churches in Philly are, you know, they're too big to maintain as their congregations get smaller. So a lot of them ran out to community organizations and stuff like that. Um, so they were happy to rent to us for 20 bucks an hour uh, to put on shows for, you know, a few hours, one weekend a month or whatever. Um, and it was at that time, too, where, you know, a show would have the weirdest assortment of bands. Uh, you know, it'd be Blank 77 playing with Rorschach and, you know, Greyhouse or something. Uh it was just, you know, it was great. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and a lot of folks came out. 
there's a real desire for DIY punk shows, not just, you know, over 21 shows, bar shows, whatever that a lot of us couldn't get into, uh, you know, cause we just weren't old enough at that point mm-hmm. uh, or didn't have the desire to do that. Cause a lot of us were, you know, straight edge kids or whatever. Um, so yeah, that worked out. It was great. You know, we got to, uh, expose people to a lot of interesting ideas that we were excited about, you know, through pamphlets from different organizations or doing fundraisers for different groups. Uh, we'd always make up some like mediocre vegetarian food to give out to people <laughs> for free at the shows. You know, uh, it was like food, not bombs before we had ever heard of food, not bombs. Uh, you know, some shitty chili with overcooked rice. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And then as we, you know, kind of settled into living in the city, we got more involved in, uh, you know, various political movements or volunteering with different organizations that we cared about, stuff like that. Uh, while also, you know, starting to, as a band, you know, we were also starting to, uh, finally, get some shows and generate a little interest. We put out a seven inch and that went over pretty well. And that's on Bloodlink, uh, right? That was on Bloodlink. Yes. Can you talk about Bloodlink uh, a little bit? Cause I think people, <laughs> I mean, even if it's the 30 second version, I just think it's such an interesting, interesting label. It is an interesting label. I'll give you that. Uh, <laughs> and is that it? Is that all you want to say? <laughs> uh, I'll say a little more. Uh, <laughs> I I first met Scott Bybin, who ran Bloodlink, at the Jersey Shore in Ocean City on the boardwalk, uh, where he was trying to sell me Hardline Seven Inches. Uh, <laughs> I believe it was the Statement and Vegan Reich Seven Inches. Of course, it uh, was. That he was trying to, yeah, sell to me. Uh, so I don't know. Just as an aside, that was my first encounter with him. Uh, and then, you know, he put out those first couple uh, splits. They were really great. Uh, you know, some really great bands that uh, I had either just learned about through Evolution or maybe haven't even hadn't even heard yet at that point. You know, Struggle Undertow, and I forget what the other one was. Uh I think there was a second split seven inch maybe early on. Um, so he asked us if we wanted to do a seven inch and we were, we were psyched. Uh, you know, that was the first offer we had had. Uh, you know, we kind of changed our band and I mean our, our band name and, uh, and our music had kind of been evolving into what, you know, to me was the, the sound that policy three had at that point and uh so he offered to do seven inch and that was great uh and with that um you know it was went well record came out we were all excited uh got a bunch of records from him as time went on the quality of the represses maybe went down as Mm -hmm. uh scott was really into scamming things and uh, had uh, 
an endless collection of Kinkos. Uh, it wasn't the cards at that point. It was the, I don't remember what they really called them, but it almost looked like a deck of cards, the little, or the counter. Uh, it was a counter thing that you stuck into the copy machines. Uh, so he had a, a collection of them so he could make free copies. Uh, so he started just photocopying our record covers and he inserts, I think pretty much on all the records. Uh, and back then, I don't know if you remember that Kinko's had the, the blue and the red, uh, ink options. Yes. So it felt like everyone's zine or record was some combination of black, blue, or red. <laughs> uh, cause it was sort of free colors you could do stuff in if you had the, the counter card. Uh, so that was that was something uh, that we weren't too excited about as the <laughs> the represses kept happening and uh, and you know as time went on there were there were a lot of rumors about Scott uh, and we kind of started to distance ourselves from him some and I mean in recent years a lot of shit's come out uh, that, right is really awful. Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, turn of events. Right. Uh, hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back to the music. Yeah, yeah I was going to say just yeah. the, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I will steer us clear. The, uh, you know, ha- putting out that record and, uh, you know, starting to sell them and, and did, you know, I have to bring it up. Did, did the, did the words <laughs> start to culminate did the did the did you go? What does that mean? Like, what are you talking about in terms of either the word emo or screamo? Was there um, because I I've read some interviews with you and and I I I think we're on the same page about like it, there was there is a definite disconnect um, and the word has forever been hated and I don't think anyone ever wants to be called it. Um, I've done 160, God knows how many of these episodes. Every single one hates it. So I should have named my podcast something else. Um, I could have named it anything else. <laughs> Too late now. Too late now. But for you guys, the the did you remember hearing those terms? Did you did you remember anything about you know hearing those and being like, what is that? Or were you aware of it? Yeah, I remember. You know, we went on our first U.S. tour in '93 uh, that summer, and. You know, we were touring on that 7-inch, uh, the Bloodlink 7-inch that had just come out. Nobody really knew who we were, uh, but we wanted to go on a tour, and so we set up a tour and thought that miraculously it would go really well. Uh, and it was fucking great, but, you know, we didn't make any money. Our van broke down, felt like every fucking day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was barely anybody at the shows, but it was you know, there's still people I met on that tour who I'm friends with now and bands that I love that we played with and stuff like that. That uh, what, 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 what are some of the bands that, that you played with on those first? Uh, 
let's see on the first tour we played a lot of shows with spark marker and uh undertale mm-hmm. uh that was that was really great we became pretty friendly with those guys and uh yeah that was a lot of fun uh running into them on the east coast and then later on the west coast uh we played with groundwork uh julia um let's see who else uh, a handful of shows with Hellbender. Wow. Later became friends with, and I did a lot of uh, traveling with Mile Marker and played a lot of shows with them with 400 years later on. Uh, but uh, let's see, those are the, the standouts. The standouts, off yeah. Off my head so right that, now. So that first tour, uh, you thought it was going to be it. You were like, we're going we're gonna to be huge rock stars. And then you, not rock stars, but you were going <laughs> to, you were going to, you you were gonna kill it. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was gonna be awesome. You know, we had I I set up the tour, so I had shows. It was a thirty eight day tour. Uh, I thought we had shows almost every day. In the end, I think it wound up being oh man, what was it? It was like twenty one shows in thirty eight days, uh, and we were you know driving around the whole U S. So almost half of the tour fell through uh, oh my god we, <laughs> we wound up being in uh san diego for almost a week we played the shake cafe three times uh just because there happened to be shows and we're like I'm kind of stuck here we don't have any other bands you know we could i mean any other shows uh you know if we just play a few songs and try to sell a fucking seven inch uh so we you know we stayed with uh jp justin pearson and uh some folks down there for the week and yeah just kept playing the shake cafe over and over again uh, <laughs> i bet the kids going there like wait they're on the flyer again <laughs> uh, i don't even think we made it onto the flyer it was, right you know just the last minute right add on because we didn't have anything else to do that's for sure we didn't have the money to you know drive anywhere cool and uh you know hang out on the beach or whatever right uh spend any money uh so but it was great. You know, we, we were all so excited to then go on tour again the next summer, uh, which was, you know, summer 94. Uh, that tour was phenomenal. You know, we, uh, is that when I saw you guys, uh, we were not on tour when you saw us. Uh, that was just like a one off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we did a lot of, a lot of weekends up and down the East Coast, uh, you know, where we'd play UMass and Burlington or, you know, Boston and Providence or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, any two shows that we could find that we could conceivably drive to between a Friday after school or work and, you know, getting back sometime horribly late on a Sunday, uh, we would do it. And, uh, so yeah, that was that was one of those weekends. Cool. So, um, but this but this second summer tour went went a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah, to put it lightly, uh, yeah, that tour was great. You know, by that time, uh, we had you know our name and our record had gotten around a little bit more. Uh, some more people knew who we were. We had put out the LP on Old Glory, uh, and one of those weekends, which might have been that same weekend, 
uh, that you saw us play in Burlington. We played, uh, I think it was at UMass Amherst, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. a show with uh, Hose Got Cable and Shopmaker. And uh, that was where we met the guys from Shopmaker. And we just totally hit it off. Uh, had a really great time hanging out that night. And uh, Tim from Shopmaker uh, was like, hey, we're, you know, we're going on tour next summer too. Uh, cause we've been talking about that. We're like we should do some of it together. And, uh, you know, we kept talking about it over the months, uh, as the, as it went through the winter and spring started and we were starting to figure out the, the route for the tour. Uh, and we decided to do the first half together out to the West coast. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, we barely knew each other. We were probably both a little trepidatious, uh, you know, a little unsure what what it would be like to tour with another band for an extended period of time uh, when our previous tour had gone so poorly uh, from a financial standpoint. Uh, but we had a new van, we had a new record, and uh, we were psyched to get on the road again. And uh, And we just, yeah, we really hit it off and had a a really fun time uh, playing together every day. Uh, Seeing a lot of folks we had met the previous summer. Uh, Yeah, the shows were a million times better. Uh, We played a bunch of shows with Propagandi on that tour. Uh, We played with Indian Summer, Julia again, uh, Spitboy, uh, God, who else? Scants, Carver's Driver. Oh wow! Uh, you know a lot of, a lot of, a lot of our kind of contemporaries and and favorites of the, of the day. Uh, we played with Unbroken in L.A. Uh, that was fun because we were friends with uh, those guys. Um, yeah, just a lot of. A lot of good times on that tour. It just went so much smoother than the previous year. Right. Uh, And, uh, yeah. And, you know, again, continued to meet people and be inspired, being on the road, seeing what what other folks were doing doing in different towns and bringing that back to Philly to influence what we were doing as far as shows and activism and, uh, even you know music was was also interesting uh and that was when book your own fucking life was around so we did the first tour we uh booked some spaces out of that uh you had mentioned that earlier mm-hmm. uh yeah by that time that was around and places that we didn't already know people uh that that definitely came in handy uh we were like what the fuck are we gonna do like between <laughs> Salt Lake City and uh, Omaha or, you know, whatever it was, you know, like, oh, you could go up to Rapid City or Sioux Falls or, you know, whatever. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that was, that was helpful. And, uh, yeah, that tour was, uh, by all accounts on our end, a huge success and a lot of fun hanging out with the Shopmaker guys. Yeah, I bet. One of my favorite bands of that era what i thought what was interesting the article that was about you 
or that was written recently, and I didn't think about this until the person wrote. I think it's worth mentioning, is a lot of these you know bands don't get remembered, and you you talked about archiving you know earlier, and and I know that your brother um, does as well, um, and I think those mm-hmm. things are important to keep the story going. But it was kind of interesting that in that time period, definitely made like like a band might have released a record, toured once and maybe just the Midwest, and then they're done. And <laughs> it wasn't like a, there wasn't a chance. There wasn't a, um, a lot of time. So I definitely felt when I was going to these shows, like I needed to go. I don't, especially where I lived, like, I mean, I can't believe they mm-hmm. drove seven hours or wherever they drove to come up here. <laughs> uh, it's one thing if yeah. the Montreal bands came down, that was a couple hours. But like, even like, so mm-hmm. I felt this like urgency. And I think the that uh, everybody together in i don't know like you might think your life's forever and you're young and this will last forever and and i i kind of i felt i was like no i i got to do this right now like this is <laughs> like i need to see this band and um did you feel that <laughs> did you feel that there was this this moment that you needed to sort of enjoy or were you too young to kind of it was just like that was just what was in front of you yeah, I think it was more of what was in front of me at the time. I didn't, it didn't really register to me just then in the moment that, that it was so fleeting, uh, that, yeah, so many, like we were together for six years in total and that felt like forever compared mm-hmm. to, you know, somebody like, I don't know, Native Nod, who we were friendly with and played a fair amount of shows with, uh, or, you know, Iconoclast or Human Shopmaker, uh, you know, some of these bands that, yeah, I agree, you know, we're only around for a seven inch or a couple seven inches or, you know, a tour or two. And, uh, and I do feel really lucky to have seen some of them because, you know, a lot of those bands are still some of my favorite bands, you know, like, uh, Universal Order of Armageddon was a band that, uh, kind of came out of nowhere to us when we started doing shows at the uh, the Calvary Church as the Cabbage Collective, they showed up to one of our shows once and were like, hey, we're, you know, we're a new band from Maryland and we're wondering if we could just play, like, we only have, like, three songs. And we're like, yeah, sure, what the hell? Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you ever got to see them, but they were fucking awesome. You know, right. it was, like, total chaos. Uh, and... Yeah, just so so much amazing energy and uh, oh man, yeah, it just kind of tore up the room, uh, right. literally, <laughs> in a really fun way. Uh, and then you know the next show that we did, they came back and we're like, hey, you mind if we play a couple songs again? And we're like, absolutely. <laughs> like, who knows how long this will last? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that happened like two or three times and. And they, you know, they were still together for a little bit longer as people uh, started to learn who they were, but they definitely weren't together for very long. Uh, so yeah, in that respect, I definitely, I felt lucky to have been able to see them. Uh, and, you know, a lot of bands like that, that were like, well, that was, you know, that was quick. You know, they weren't around very long. Uh, uh, but 
I think I managed to sidestep your email question. I know that uh, was that was a good job, but I'm still on it. I'm I'm ready to ask again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting because I, you know, I hadn't really heard the term probably till I don't know, probably like our '94 tour was when I started to hear it. And I was like, emo, like what the fuck? Like you know, the same reaction that every other person in the punk scene who's ever been called that has had. Uh, I was like, we're not emo. Like we play with, you know, all all these bands. We'll play, you know, we play shows with Avail and I don't know Rorschach and Born Against and you know all these bands that no one would call them emo. Like how are we emo? That's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, you know, and then in 95, we did our uh, tour in Europe, and, like, every fucking flyer was, like, emo from Philadelphia, emo core from the U.S. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, I guess, I guess we just got to kind of accept this. Uh, <laughs> who started it? not going back. Ah, who the fuck knows? It wasn't me. We sure as hell didn't call ourselves that, but, <laughs> you know, there came a point where, it's, I don't know, it just doesn't matter, <laughs> like... Uh, sure, if that helps you understand what you think we sound like, whatever, you know, like, obviously we were influenced by DC bands that, uh, you know, that people have called emo, uh, I don't know, <laughs> doesn't really matter. To One me. of my favorite uh, responses ever to this question, Bull, that was fantastic. Yeah. They're just like, completely oh, just like, <laughs> fuck this still, I love it. How about Screamo? Did you remember hearing that? I don't remember hearing that till, well, what felt like considerably later uh, to okay. me. You know, like later 90s. Uh, like, I don't really remember anyone describing us as that at the time. Yeah, know, I just we meant the together. word. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you guys are definitely uh, emo. Like, that's, but, but let's, let's, let's start to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't really remember even hearing the word until, uh, I don't know, maybe bands like, you know, Orchid and like City of Caterpillar and stuff like that started to come around. Maybe, maybe then, like, you know, 90, I don't know, seven or whenever that was, yeah, six or something. Uh, I feel like was the first I really heard people start saying that. Uh, but I don't know, maybe I was just out in the loop and missed it. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't think we were ever accused of that back then. It <laughs> <laughs> was just straight up email. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I mean, it is funny when some newer bands, uh, I talk about them and I don't mention the word. It just happened to come from my site and they'll be like, Hey, uh, you know, don't talk about us. <laughs> I'll be like, I'll be like, shit. Like this is the worst word ever. <laughs> Unless some people maybe need to chill out a little. Yeah, unless, unless, yeah, exactly. Unless they're DJing or uh, selling out some arena with that word, everyone else <laughs> hates it. Uh huh. That's it. Yeah, Steve Aoki, you know, he can sell out an arena. Did you know he that did. he follows, he doesn't follow Washed Up Emo on Twitter, but he follows my Is This Band Emo Twitter account. And it blew my mind when he, I was like, holy shit, Steve Aoki actually like went to the site and like maybe put in some bands and I hope he laughed and now he follows. It was just like random. Yep. 
Because he's yeah, down. He's a punk. Yeah. Yeah. He had a label, you know. Fuck. It is fun when, <laughs> I mean, definitely meeting people later um, that are influenced by it. And, you know, I definitely want to talk about some of the other bands you were in, but I think it's worth mentioning now, bringing that up of like, you know, Stevie Oki, like later the impact today of policy of three and people still referencing. I mean, there was an article from November. People are reissuing the records. Like when those things would yeah. come up, was it weird in 2005 when ebullition reached out or is it even weirder now that that like French <laughs> label wants to do something? Just talk about that. Yeah. Like, and real, did you think that was ever going to happen? Of course, probably not, but thinking about it now. <laughs> Of course, probably not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, I don't know. There's this interesting cyclical aspect to my experience with punk, which I'm sure a lot of people have had. But, uh, you know, through touring with Policy of Three, I met all these great people. And then a couple of years went by, and then I started playing with 400 Years and uh, did a bunch of touring with them and ran into a lot of the same people again. Uh a few years later throughout the U S and Europe. And then a few years after that started playing with Rambo, uh, totally different than my previous two bands. Uh, and same thing, you know, at that point it was 10, 15 years from the first time I'd gone on tour, but I'm still crossing paths with a lot of the same people. Uh, and I love that. Uh, I love that connection. And, it's so inspiring to see these people I met, you know, when I was a teenager, they were probably teenagers or in their early twenties and see like all the fucking cool shit that they're doing now and interesting and inspiring work. Uh, which that's a little bit of an aside, but sort of related, uh, totally related. So, uh, <laughs> but the, the interesting policy of three, I, you know, I find it really flattering. It's, um, I, it, you know, it warms my heart that uh, people still are interested in music that we made fucking 25 years ago or something now. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, longer than that, even. Uh, we broke up 25 years ago. That's crazy. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, hey, Bull, you're going to do an emo podcast 25 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty wild uh but yeah i guess each step along the way as you know after the band broke up once uh the evolution thing came about i was like oh that's cool you know somebody wants to put this stuff out uh who we you know have a lot of respect for did a label that was very influential to us uh it's awesome. It feels, you know, very fitting uh, that it would be with Kent on Evolution. Uh, and, you know, in honor of that, I decided to torture myself by screen printing every fucking cover and hand gluing all those CD jackets together, too. Uh, <laughs> because what, you know, what can you do when you're in a, from a 90s emo band? You've got to do that. You got, you got to DIY uh, it. You're not going to have someone else do it. Hell no. Uh, so yeah, I I cursed myself for years as I printed those covers uh, till that thing went out of out of print. 
<clears throat> printed and glued. Uh, but, but in the end, you know, I'm really happy with it. I think it, I don't know. It was fun to screen print again. I hadn't done that much for a few years. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, but yeah. And then again, you know, once a few years, more years went by and then Christoph from Stonehenge, who was an old friend, you know, through, man, I think we first met. So I started screen printing in the early nineties, maybe, 91 or 92 I made this uh like animal liberation anti-drug t-shirt uh I would have been all over that it. oh yeah that was like be straight for the animals uh you know about animal testing and beer and cigarettes and stuff uh it was great <laughs> um so I would sell it at like the middle sex shows and stuff like that. And, uh, I put an ad in, fuck, I don't even remember. I put an ad somewhere. Maybe it was like when heart attack was first starting or maybe it was MRR. I forget. And, uh, you know, this guy, Christoph from France writes to me, uh, you know, from Stonehenge fingerprint band. Uh, and we started writing back and forth and he came to the U S we hung out, uh, for a while when he was here when we went to Europe, he set up our shows in France, uh, for policy of three. And, you know, we just became friends and have, I mean, through touring mostly kept in touch, uh, and then Facebook a little bit since then. But, uh, you know, then he reached out, which felt totally normal because yeah. it's the guy who I've known for 30 plus years now. Uh, and was like, hey, yeah, I'm doing a, you know, he's doing a few reissues of French bands, and uh, asked if we'd be interested in it, and uh, yeah, of course, I was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Uh, that's cool. I'm really flattered that he asked. You know, our our European tour was was phenomenal. Uh, you know, it was back in the mid '90s when there weren't really that many U.S especially DIY bands going there yet. Um, so it, it felt really new and exciting and totally different than touring the U S because you were mostly playing squats and mm -hmm. there's barely anything like that in the U S back then, really nothing like that here anymore. Um, so, uh, so yeah, for Christoph to, uh, talk to us about that just felt totally natural and, was just kind of an, another interesting piece in this cycle of, uh, yeah, some level of interest every few years kind of coming up where uh, someone wants to do an interview or talk about that time period or talk about our music or, you know, re-release something. Uh, I think that's, that's special. That's great, you know? It's, it's, yeah. it, and I think the, I talked about this yesterday with uh, Kip from the Red Scare. Um, Mm -hmm. If you remember that, I mean, and we were just talking about like, yeah. it was this, it, you can't have that moment happen again, uh, mm -hmm. because the internet, yes, we had me, I had an internet with computer if it was like a local BBS or, you know, started to, you know, but it was like super archaic. I might've had aim, but like, it wasn't like it is. And I think even, you know, if it was even uh, 2001 with like nine 11, like nothing 
after those moments will ever be the same. And uh, I think the stuff that was happening then, it wasn't like checking out the book or checking Wikipedia. You ha like you said when I when I the earlier when we were talking and I was like, well, how'd you get the bands? And you're like, I went to the show and talked to him. I'm like, of course you did. Like, I'm that's so stupid. But I, you can't, you can't think of that because that's so, that's not what it is. And I think that was such that special part where I, I needed. If I did not go to that show, there was no way I would know about your band. And mm -hmm. I love that sense of unknown, that sense of discovery, and um, I think. You know, you being just you guys were jumping into it, and I just I just if talk about I mean I think that I think that will never happen again. Yes, there's DIY shows. Yes, there's basement shows. But the that that moment in time before everything got fast, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's also when you said there's a moment that makes me think like yes that that moment was very important to me. You know, it was very influential uh, to me as a musician, as a person in my development, you know, uh, my worldview, my politics, all of this. And I cherish that. And, but I don't, you know, I'm not interested in trying to recreate or relive that, you know, the world continues to turn and I'm, you know, can only move in one direction. Uh, you know, I'm moving on and doing other things. But it's still important to me, and I remember it and cherish it, and it it really, uh, you know, it's very flattering to see that other people also still find some importance in the music that we created and the scene that we were a part of. Uh, that That's great. You know, that is what, what I got from punk and what was so important to me that I, you know, kind of forever feel indebted to and want to kind of give back in a sense that uh yeah i want to i want to create things that inspire people i want to create things that motivate people to make change for the better in in this fucked up world and you know inspire people to do good important work uh and lead happier lives you know and fucking <laughs> whatever, whatever inspires them. Uh, right. You know, we were excited about so many things and tried to share them either through our lyrics or through the stuff that we put on our table for sale, you know, our friends' zines and pamphlets from organizations we cared about and uh, all that kind of stuff, you know, having, uh, you know, with the uh, Cabbage Collective, we also did some spoken word shows that were, uh, you know, just, we didn't want to just have bands all the time because, uh, you know, the scene is so focused around that. Uh, so we would always have other stuff at our shows. And then sometimes we would do these spoken word shows that were just whoever wanted to tell a story or talk about a thing. And it was awesome. You know, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, we were trying to think of different ways of kind of learning ourselves, challenging people, thinking about, you know, what other, things are important to us and how we can incorporate them into this scene that we cared so much about. Uh, <clears throat> I love that. And yeah, that, that was the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, I did want to mention 400 years. Um, I love that band. And um, again, I think 
a lot of people still talk about and 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 still mention. Um, and then the other one, too, you know what I miss completely? Uh, mm-hmm. And I, 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 we could have a whole other podcast about 400 years, so we'll just leave that. Uh, if you, uh, but I fucking missed Rambo. And I don't know how. I don't know where the fuck I was. I know I was working at e- Equal Vision around this time. But I was listening today to like, and I was like, fuck, man, I like loved Madball. Like, I'd been all over this. I don't know how I missed Rambo. And I apologize. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like anarcho crust core with breakdowns. Uh, yeah, and I used to know. do a breakdown of the year show in college. I would like, <laughs> I would rank the breakdowns for the all the hardcore metal bands and like. So yes, breakdowns way into it. That's again why I'm kicking myself. Why didn't I know about you guys? And I just watched some live show of yours in Jakarta. Oh man! Like what the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. Yeah, that that me, sounds. Do you look man. like you guys had a shitload of fun? Oh, it was fucking phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, with that band, we really went way further geographically than any other band I've played in by far. You know, we went to Australia and all over South Asia. Uh, and uh, man, yeah, those are some fucking great tours. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, that, that is a band I would have never thought, uh, you know, if you had asked me kind of like you were saying, what, you know, I think you'd be doing an interview about emo <laughs> 25 years after policy three broke up, you know, when policy three was together, I thought about 10, 15 years after that, if I'd be playing in a weird crust band, uh, <laughs> Next with New York hardcore, there's not a chance in hell I would have thought that would happen. Uh, but it's a testament to the uh, the powers of Tony Pointless, our singer and my friend. Uh, we volunteered together at this anarchist bookstore, uh, volunteer-run bookstore in Philly called The Wooden Shoe, and uh, yeah, we wound up. We we first became friends because he had a space a warehouse that he did shows in called Stalag 13. Uh, they had some really great shows towards the, towards the end of when the Cabbage Collective was doing shows. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the venue scene in Philly at all, but, uh, I am a little bit for a few years. We did shows for a few years at the Calvary church here in Mm -hmm. West Philly. And then we got kicked out of there. Uh, when we did a citizen fish, uh, Spitboy show and some crusty punks tagged the bathroom and broke some 40s outside, so we got kicked out. Damn. Uh, and we then started doing shows at the Unitarian Church, which still does shows to this day. Yes. Uh, which is kind of awesome. Um, so, yeah, we started doing shows there in, I think, late 93 uh, or early 94. Uh, and, yeah, you know, fucking. 25 years later they're still doing shows uh pretty much mostly through r5 these days but were you guys uh, the first people to do shows there yeah wow yeah yep uh and then we we started also doing some shows at at stalag uh Mm -hmm. if the church wasn't available or if they were there were various times, many times over the years where the church was like, oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep doing this. You know, the neighbors are complaining or the 
parishioners are complaining or the city's giving us a hard time. Uh, so there was a lot of iffiness with the church over the years. Um, but I mean, they were really great to work with and I'm so glad that it still exists, uh, as a show space. Um, but yeah, we started doing some shows at Stalag as well. And, uh, that was when Tony and I started to become friendly. Um, he was doing more, you know, crust and kind of, you know, punky punk kind of shows. Uh, and we were doing whatever we were doing. And I think our crossover was kind of, we did a show with, uh, his hair has gone, uh, black army jacket and shit. I forget who else. Adam and his package played. That was the outlier. But, yes. Uh, uh <laughs> but it was this like kind of crustier show. And, uh, um, you know, we kind of combined forces on that and that was, that was great. Uh, but yeah, then Tony and I wound up, uh, volunteering together at the, at the wooden shoe and became friends and their bass player, uh, I believe was in school at the time and, uh, couldn't do the tour that they were planning for that summer. And he's like, so any, uh, interest in filling in playing bass for our tour this summer? And I was like, Ooh, I have been kind of itching to play and hadn't been playing with anybody for a year or so at that point. Uh, I was like, ah, fuck, what the hell? I got nothing else going on. You know, my job was real flexible. Uh, I was like, I would never think I would play in like a goofy, jokey, you know, band where we dressed up in costumes and had cardboard props and all kinds of crazy shit going on. Uh, but, but I really liked those guys and I liked that they were doing something in reaction to, again, the really violent scene that had developed in Philly and New York and a lot of the Northeast at that point, mm -hmm. you know, it was like DMS and, uh, FSU crew, uh, FSU. Yeah. Like all those fucking clowns. Uh, sorry. No, they're uh, fucking clowns and they're probably in jail <laughs> or they're listening to this uh, right now mostly. and they're going to come kill me. It's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just, yeah, like all these fucking dudes beating the shit out of each other at shows. Um, you know, when we did shows, that was the antithesis. That was our inspiration for what we didn't want. And I really liked that that was a big inspiration for Rambo was, you know, we want people to have fun at shows. We like heavy music and we want people to have fun at shows. Uh, but, you know, for it to not be at other people's expense. Uh, you know, we like when people dance around and jump around and all this, but you know, it shouldn't just be a bunch of fucking dudes beating the shit out of each other, scaring everybody else to like hang out in the back of the fucking show space and, uh, and uh, putting your fist out, you know, so you don't get hit. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does anyone really enjoy that? No. no. My arm gets tired. Uh, <laughs> and then I can't finger point during the breakdown. Know, come on. And that's all we really want to do. Like when set it off gets uh, played by Madball, I want to be able to finger point. I don't need to. I don't. I don't need to look out for an arm coming toward my face. Exactly. When they <laughs> sing about Colossal Man with a skinhead, I want to be able to sing along. <laughs> my favorite. Uh, uh, so I really liked that. That was, you know, I thought that the, yeah, the inspiration, you know, the politics. We were. Uh, on the same page and yeah, they were reacting to this thing that I 
that initially caused me to leave the hardcore scene, you know, 10 or so years before, mm-hmm. uh, when shit was getting too violent. And like, you know, I love fucking Posicore. <laughs> uh, you know, Youth Stay, Grill Biscuits, all that was really inspiring and inspirational. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, inspiring to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, Uniform Choice, a lot of those bands, I really, I still like. Uh, but, yeah, it just got too stupid. Yeah. Just too, too many fucking beefcake dudes trying to show off to each other. <laughs> what is scratching your itch now? Like, what other things are you working on, you know, today that you're excited about um, that you can share? Yeah. Uh, I have recently been playing music a little bit again. I hadn't for a number of years other than, you know, the occasional, like, there's a tradition of Halloween cover bands in Philly. Uh, so I've played in a lot of those over the years. Uh, but I hadn't really played in any serious bands for since Rambo split up, uh, you know, which is a little over 10 years now. Uh, but I've recently been playing around, messing around with some music with some of those guys again, uh, which has been fun. It's not a very, like, kind of low-scale, uh, you know, low-pressure yeah. uh, way. Um, so, yeah, that's been scratching an itch, as you say, uh, a little bit musically. Um, yeah, I think after after Rambo split up, we at that point I had been touring, like, pretty, pretty seriously for about 15 years. Uh, from when Policy 3 started touring to when Rambo split up. Uh, and I'd always kind of felt, I love touring, I love playing music, but I always sort of felt split between Philly, my home that I love, and being on the road. Yeah, it sounds like a Bob Seger song or something, but uh, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was hard at times to like maintain relationships and all of that. Uh, um, so it was really exciting to actually be home for several months at a time and see the seasons change and hang out with friends and have a garden and like shit like that, that, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty basic, but cool. Uh, and around that same time, uh, I had been working at a, a natural foods co-op for several years uh, just through most of the time that Rambo was together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before that, I worked at an independent natural food store, both of which were extremely understanding of me going away for months at a time. Amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, which is great. Uh, so around the time that Rambo split up was the time that... Uh, the co-op I was working at was starting to think about expanding. And, uh, I kind of, I like having a big project, you know, be it a record or a tour to set up or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, that filled that void immediately. Uh, so I really dove into that for a number of years, trying to get our shit together as a tiny little store that had never turned a profit, uh, in it's, you know, 40 years of existing, uh, to trying to, you know, get it together so lenders would consider giving us money and uh, we could actually, you know, expand into a, 
a store that made a more positive impact on our neighborhood, on you know the farmers that we sourced produce from, the small producers that we would you know get bread and coffee from, and all these different products, uh, which you know was it fell in line with a lot of my beliefs that I developed through punk uh it was you know right there uh the co-op was kind of it was that that thing for me uh that was your next band yeah exactly (laughs) uh with 900 members (laughs) at the time uh but yeah it ticked off all the right boxes for you know animal welfare human rights labor issues environmentalism uh investment in the neighborhood that I live in, uh, fair wages for people, you know, all of these mm-hmm. things that I cared about, I was confronted with every day trying to figure out how to make that work as a small store, uh, you know, being compared to and competing with big chains that had come into existence since we were, you know, over the last 10 years with Whole Foods and now Amazon and, you know, all this, uh, right you know, trying to figure out how to stay relevant and how to provide people with good jobs and support people and organizations that we cared about. Uh, so it was a, a really complex puzzle with no solution uh, that really kept my interest and uh, was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot over the years working there. I worked there for almost 18 years, and it was great. And then, you know, when I decided to leave, I, I just felt like I'd kind of taken it as far as I could, and I needed a little break from the retail world. Uh, and although I, you know, met so many amazing people over the years, and have so much respect for the people who work at food co-ops and try to, you know, try to stay afloat in this like fucking brutal <laughs> environment yeah. uh, these days with so much competition and uh, you know it's so hard to be a small small business to begin with let alone one that has all of these like ideals that make it even harder <laughs> to, to stay afloat or you know have produce that's affordable to folks in the neighborhood while also paying the farmers a fair price and your workers yes. a fair price, a fair wage you know it's it's yeah, it is a tough, uh, tough business to be in, but, uh, but really, you know, rewarding and challenging and difficult, uh, in a good way at the same time, you know, it really made my brain hurt a lot over the years, uh, <laughs> struggling with trying <laughs> to figure out how to, how to do all that. Uh, and then, yeah, there, you know, there came a point where I felt like I'd done as much as I could, uh there and kind of needed a break from it and was ready to move on to something new and uh i left there and started working for uh, a solar uh company as an electrician uh and yeah i've been working as an electrician which has been really fun and challenging in a very different way uh it's a skill that i've always wanted i enjoy working with my hands uh and I'd always been kind of terrified of, of electric and, uh, you know, over the years I've worked with a lot of neighborhood, uh, tradespeople, carpenters and plumbers and uh, a couple electricians and stuff. And, uh, 
and this was yeah the thing that I had the least knowledge of but wanted to learn the most uh, to get over my fear of it and you know just have a more rounded knowledge you know DIY mm-hmm. I like doing shit myself and uh, and sharing those skills amongst my my friends in my community uh, so yeah I've been learning that and uh, working in that field uh, and it, it just worked out really well because I had a lot of management experience from the co-op and the company that I went to was looking for people with some management experience while I was also looking to learn electrical skills. So I was kind of splitting my time between um, doing some management that they needed uh, on the back end while also working in the field and learning uh, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, That's so punk. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I'm saying that earnestly. I think the, I'm just, I'm visualizing the trajectory, and I know that you're um, doing that, but I just, or you're, you're feeling it, or you, you, you did it, but it's just the connections with the bands, and then the, the, you know, the, the co-op, and then also to, you know, the, the doing electrician, but also learning something and and trying it and wanting to do it. I'm it just a. Uh, um, I don't know. Just I'm really Im- Im- impressed and um, uh, inspired um, because I, I mean, again, the seeing, you know, me seeing Minor Threat or me reading, you know, a book about all that stuff and being like, I'm fucking straight edge. I'm vegetarian. Like, this is all bullshit. Like, the fucking world sucks. Like, just having all that and you, like, you know, I sold out. Like I, 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 I had to pay my fucking rent. But I think you channeling it and and each time talking about the community, talking about that is really beautiful. And I don't. I know that it happens, and I know that there are other areas that this thing happens. But I do think there was some weird thing in the water or this the the time period that it cultivated this it's almost like we had a a a different like mulch for the garden that like (laughs) had this happen and i and i think it was the ones that searched the ones that dug a little deeper got it and it was rewarding when you did make that dig Mm -hmm. i think it was the nutritional yeast that was the thing (laughs) or the fluoride Uh, that we finally got in the water right yeah yeah exactly uh but yeah yeah absolutely i mean you know this this punk ethos has kind of infiltrated every aspect of my life (laughs) uh for better or for worse and you know like yeah it it informs every decision (laughs) yeah in a indirect way or or direct way uh it's interesting you know it got me really young and you know I don't I'm not that active these days within the punk scene you know I'm not going to shows very much I'm still friendly with some of the folks younger folks in Philly who are playing the bands and stuff like that but uh, but yeah it's you know it's more that that lifestyle that ethos uh that'll be with me forever well thank you bull uh again appreciate the time uh it was an honor talking to you and um you know thanks for always you know thanks for making music 
Hey, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate what you're doing as well. Uh, I'm glad we made this happen.